Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution. Personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi there, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, from the Hotel Bennett in Charleston, South Carolina. Zach Griff from the Points Guy with his report on the brave new world of frequent flyer programs and some changes you need to know about. Then, a deep dive into Charleston with Michael Bennett. He was born and raised here, and not to mention the owner of the hotel that bears his name. I'll visit with Lisa Lutoff Perlo, the author of Making Waves. I'll sit with Chef Edgar Cano about food sourcing and menu psychology. First up, from the points guy, Zach Griff. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx Service Guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. When it comes to picking the perfect treats for your dog, Stuart makes the choice easy by keeping it real. Real ingredients, real nutrients, real benefits. Stuart dog treats are free from additives, corn, soy, wheat, and grains. Plus, they're freeze-dried to lock in all the great nutrition and natural flavor your furry friend deserves. Stuart freeze-dried dog treats. Big, tail-wagging nutritional benefits. Available on Amazon.com today. Hello, Zach Griff. Hey, Peter. How are you doing today? I am doing just fine. I know that you, uh, you're you on the ground today, which is unusual, but I really wanted to get an update from you as we enter a new year as to where we really stand with the frequent flyer programs at the airlines because they're getting changed by the hour, it seems. 
the, a lot of the programs are getting devalued by the hour. Some of the programs have gone from being a loyalty program to essentially a privilege program. And it's no longer based on how many miles you fly or how many segments you fly or how many flights you fly, but how much money you spend. So is there any hope out there? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I think that as we start 2024 and programs keep uh, evolving, what I'm seeing and what I'm calling it is that they're no longer loyalty programs as they were designed 40 years ago when they started coming out. I call them frequent spender programs now. And I think there's there's no better example than to see what Delta just, um, just implemented with the new SkyMiles changes for this year, which received really, really severe negative backlashes. They removed mileage and segments and how many miles and how far you've flown in the calculation for earning status. Now it's, are you spending 15, 20, $25,000 a year with Delta and its partners to earn status? Uh, it's, a, it's a move that American uh, uh, implemented a few years back also during the pandemic. Uh, we're seeing United do things similar. And so it, it is interesting that the airlines are moving away from a model where it's how much you fly as opposed to now how much you spend. And are you spending on their co-branded credit cards? Are you buying their upsells, their upgrades, their bag fees, their seat fees? You name it. The, the, the name of the game right now is spending. So much for loyalty. And, and I think that that's really where it, 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 there's a disconnect in my mind where if you're a frequent spender with an airline, let's say you just did three or four trips and they were expensive or whatever. And all of a sudden you became a gold member. Does that really mean that you're a loyal traveler, right? You know, and, and the flip side is if you instead are flying on cheap fares, but you go on the same airline every single day uh, or every single week, you're taking your business trip. And then all of a sudden you're a gold member that might kind of upset you when you used to be hitting top tier status, for instance, uh, on that flying regime. So what's the, you know, what's the alternative now? You know, you're talking about the big four, right? American United Delta will throw Southwest in. Um, you know, what choices do you have? I mean, I remember when the Delta announcement was made back in October, I think it was October of last year, two airlines immediately showed up and said, if you're a disaffected Delta customer and you have status at Delta, come to us and we'll match it. One was JetBlue and I think the other was, it might have been United. Uh, and people did that. But then again, now you have, you know, if everybody has status, nobody has status. Uh, I, I, I think I told you the story the other day. I was flying from Denver to New York on a United Airlines flight. It was an A319 or an A320. They had 12 first-class seats the configured on the plane, everything else was coach. And the 12 first class seats are already sold. So there was no available first class seat, but everybody had status. How many people who were the top tier were standing by for an upgrade on a flight they were never going to get one on? It was 52 people. So at, at a certain point, what's the point? And I think that that's where the airlines are coming out and saying, we're raising the requirements, we're raising the thresholds, we're making it harder to earn status because in many ways they're not being they're not able to deliver on the benefits. It's kind of like the, the programs are 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 doing so well in a way, or were designed so easily, or you know, however you argue, 
um, in, in, in that they, they now have bloated the elite ranks such that it's very hard to deliver on the benefits. But, you know, as you think about what do you do as a consumer, I think you really have two choices. One is, right, if you're going out there and traveling, there are airlines, JetBlue, Alaska, United, they've all got these what they call status match and status challenge programs. So you can go and take the current status that you've earned with, with the airline that, that has upset you with exchanges and go and match it and kind of uh, jumpstart, fast-track your way to earning status with a different airline. But the other thing that I'm telling more and more people increasingly, that unless you're really loyal, hub captive in a place like Atlanta, or maybe a place like Denver, where you've got a lot of United and Southwest flights, um, in many cases, shop around. Don't necessarily just fly with one airline because you've always been loyal to them. Because if loyalty is a two-way street, and if they're not, airlines are coming out and not being loyal to you the way that you're loyal to them, then it, then it's an uneven relationship and you should, and you should reconsider what, what you know, your, your, your spend patterns in those cases. All right. But let me go back to something you just said a couple of minutes ago. You said the airlines are having a problem because they're unable to deliver uh, the, the benefits. I'm going to add to that sentence. They're unable to deliver the benefits that they promised. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and it's, and it's and it's and it's part of it is that there are more and more savvy travelers who are out there. But another, it, it, it does just boil down to simple economics, though, because there's only a finite supply of you know first class upgrades, and more and more people are paying for those seats nowadays. And so, let's say there's one, or in your case, zero, all fully sold out on a twelve seat first class cabin. You have fifty some people. Uh, you know, maybe one is lucky that there's a no-show and then they, they, they get that seat. But otherwise, um, you know, the airlines are not, the, the cabin, the first-class cabins aren't getting that much larger. Maybe they are by three, four, five, six, seven seats. Like, that's not going to make a difference when your list to upgrade is 70 people long or when, you know, your flights are sold out months in advance because people are paying for it now. And so, unfortunately, it seems that these promised benefits it's time for the airlines to really start thinking about maybe we should walk back some of these promises and you know, adjust the programs, take that short-term hit, because ultimately it'll become a more fair program and it'll be something that's actually uh, attainable for a traveler as opposed to promising all these really exciting, teasing all these benefits that they just can't deliver. Well, it gets into a legal area too, because if you induce me to join a program based on a promise, you know at the time you promise it, you can't or won't deliver. Now we're getting to an area of fraud, and and I'm be, I'm beginning to wonder whether we're there yet. Yeah, and you know, obviously, I'm no legal expert myself, and and, and having just just been a savvy traveler uh, over the years, I get upset, of course, when I'm told that I can use these upgrades, certificates, or whatnot on long haul flights, and I look for every single day for a month at a time, and I can't find any flights. Of course, that, that that frustrates me, and it certainly feels deceptive. Um, but but you know, again, that, that's why they pay the lawyers much bigger bucks than they're paying <laughs> me, Peter, to uh, to answer to answer those questions. Well, I think we've entered the brave new world of the draconian gift card because I had hundreds of what they call plus points on United, and like you, I spent an entire year trying to redeem them and could never get a flight where I wanted to go using those points or even an upgrade. And what do you think they did two and a half weeks ago? They expired them and there's no recourse. And we start the same process again where we're sitting around hoping for 
you know, the train to arrive, but the train doesn't arrive. And, and that's what I'm saying is just reminding people that you don't have to, you know, wait for that train necessarily. Go out, see which airline looks better. If United's the one, okay. But, you know, there's American, there's Delta, there's Southwest. There are the lower cost carriers. You've got new startups, Breeze, Avello. There, there isn't the, you know, what, what, what worked a few years ago doesn't work today. And it's a very one-sided it equation. Is. Where Zach, the airlines Zach, are in control. I go back something to Zach about the credit cards that I carry in my wallet. I was one of the first people to join uh, both a, a, an American and a United program with a credit card that was linked directly and only to their mileage program because the promise was, of course, you'd get one mile for every dollar spent, in some cases bonus dollars or bonus miles. But then again, the same problem occurs that you're earning miles you can't redeem on a credit card that you're paying interest on. Now, in the last couple of months, I should take that back. In the last 18 months, so many of us have gotten solicitations from credit cards offering 70, 80, 100, 150,000 miles or points as an inducement to join those card programs that are also linked, in many cases, to individual airlines, and the same problem ensues. I thought I was getting smart. You tell me if I'm making the right decision. I went out instead and I got a Chase Sapphire card and I got a Capital One Venture card or Venture X card because in both of those cases, um, and, oh, and, oh, and I got a Discover card. So those three cards, Discover card gave me cash back. So that's a tangible asset. It's money back in my pocket. And then both, this, both Chase Sapphire and Venture Capital or Capital One Venture X gave me points, allowing them to then buy me a ticket, a paid ticket, wherever I wanted to go based on the points that I earned. Is that what's happening now? Yeah, and I think that you, know, you hit on two very interesting points, right? And, you know, kind of the shift over time from having one of what we call the co-branded credit cards. So those are the ones that are issued by a bank, but as you say, exclusively are miles with the American program or Marriott Bonvoy or something like that to a, to a world in which you have the issuers, your Chase, your Amex, your Capital One, where what, they're, what we call flexible point currencies. And those are significantly more valuable in many cases because you're inflating yourself not only from devaluation, but you're protecting yourself in the sense that if you want to just redeem those points toward, as you mentioned, a flight or a hotel, you can kind of do whichever one you want. You choose whatever's available. There's no worries about is the mileage going to be available and are there going to be devaluations and all the questions and things that I hear all the time. And, and, and the value is actually quite good, especially in cards like the, the Sapphire Reserve, the Chase One, the Capital One Venture X. Um, but, but I think it's also worth mentioning that for many people, this world of credit cards is, is very complex. And there is value in cashback credit cards. There's also the City Double Cash Card. I know, Peter, we were talking about it a few days ago. Uh, you get 2% back cash back on everything. There's no questions asked. There's no fine print. There's none of that. So as long as you're paying your bills, you're getting 2% rebate. And in these days with the interest rate environment and the high yield savings accounts and things, that could go a lot further uh, than the miles or the points that you, rede- that you earn, that would otherwise earn with credit cards. And of course, the one caveat here that I want to suggest to everybody, and, and, and by the way, I'll give you a figure that's a little scary, but first let me suggest the caveat, and that is whether you have a cash back card or a card that just gives you points that goes out and buys you tickets, you got to pay your bill in full every month because the interest rates are so high on these credit cards 
that by the time you ever cashed in for a ticket or looked at the money you're going to get back, the money you're spending in interest will, will completely overweigh that. Right now, only 54% of Americans pay their credit card bills in full every month. So the other 46% are playing catch-up, and they can never catch up. And that is a golden rule. It's worth reemphasizing time and again that the only way you're going to beat the credit card issuers or the airlines or the hotels at this game, if you want to call it that, is just paying your credit cards on time. Don't even dip your toes in the water if you think that you're even one month of the interest with these rates. I saw the other day someone posted over 30% month monthly hit you um, you know interest that you have to pay up on on these. I mean. All it takes is one month of being late and you lose all the value from the points and benefits from the credit card. My thanks to Zach. Michael Bennett has quite a story to tell and it actually starts with his father who used to shine shoes right across the street from the old library where the Hotel Bennett now stands. The building actually is Bennett's love letter to Charleston. Born and raised here, he actually is the owner of the Hotel Bennett where we are. And what a surprise, his name is Michael Mike. Bennett. <laughs> How are you, sir? I'm very good. Nice to see you, Peter. But I mean, you are really a local kid. Yes, I'm local. I was born uh, a few blocks away, um, went to high school a few blocks away, the Catholic high school. Um, did, you wear u- did you wear uniforms? I wore green pants and a white shirt and a green tie and a green blazer all of my life from first grade to 12th grade. Did the ruler ever meet you behind? Yeah, they used to do that back in the day I with, bet the, they with did. the nuns and the priests. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, here you are a block away from where you went to school and you built this hotel. I did build this hotel. What was here before? There was a county library here that was built in 1959, kind of a postmodern style building, not very well loved. Um, it was ugly. It was ugly. Yeah. So you so you bought it. I bought the library and then went through a long process to get the right to build this hotel. This is a hotel that's been around for what, five years now? We just had our fifth year anniversary. But it doesn't look five years old. It looks like it was built yesterday. You've done a great job here. Uh, but what's great about it is where it's located, because where it's located used to be no man's land. Where it's located, when I went to high school, of course, that was many years ago, uh, Peter, uh, going north of... Calhoun Street on King Street was no man's land. And we didn't really come up this neck of the woods. This is the other side of the railroad tracks. And so you took a risk for building it here. Uh, You know, I didn't see it that way. I was a local boy. I knew it was a good spot right on Marion Square, our great public square next to the old Citadel uh, and on King Street, the best main street in America. Uh, But yes, I think it was perceived to be that. All right, I'm going to give you an opportunity for a self-serving answer. What makes King Street the best main street in America? Well, one, it's in Charleston, South Carolina, the <laughs> finest street in Charleston, the finest street uh, city in America. Um, it's a million square feet of primarily or a significant amount of local stores and shops. Yeah, you don't uh, see a lot of chains. You don't see a lot of chains here. In fact, this is the city that if you're a chain, you can be a great chain in any other city. There's a chance you're not going to do as good here as in other places because people want to come here for the locals. And they want to support them. They do. What's the biggest challenge in Charleston right now? I look at these as uh, I, challenges or opportunities. We do have a lot of visitors who come here now. We have 8 million visitors. And we're a relatively small city. Transportation, public transportation needs are here. Uh, and it does uh, 
we do have a little bit of a, a water issue here. We're very low to sea level. Uh, well, and it is called, well they, they call it the low country for a reason. They call it the low country for a reason. And the, and the, the, the city and the mayor, the leadership of the community is doing a good job on trying to do things to uh, help mitigate that. You, know, you mentioned you know, local, local stores. I mean, the restaurant scene here has exploded. I mean, I remember when I first came to Charleston, the definition of sautéed was deep fried. <laughs> you remember it too. You do. I do, but there was always a few good spots. Of course, the best place to eat was just at your home. That's what most Charlestonians do, right? We would eat home. But you see, that's the difference because you go to Atlanta, the most underutilized kitchens in America. Nobody eats at home. They all go out. Yeah. Here they eat at home. Yeah. Yeah, we, well, we, we love our family, and we love staying home and, and eating at home. And we have a great restaurant next door to the hotel named Virginia's, named after my, uh, my mother who passed away after we opened the hotel and uh, named in her, her honor. But when you think about the development here in Charleston, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said about preserving the culture and the heritage and the architecture. Yes. But what are you doing about that? Because in some cities, you know, you have height restrictions. In some cities, you have space restrictions. I'm sure you have them here. Yes. Uh, what we do, and we have a, a, a board of architectural review that has to approve everything that gets built. Uh, if you want to paint your door on your house, you've got to go through a process of uh, determining what color you're allowed to paint it. So in some reasons, it can be a pain in the, uh, a pain in the butt for you, but it really helps preserve... Uh, the uniqueness and the charm of, of city uh, of the city, and Charleston really is the most charming city in America, and the reason is because of its scale and its architecture. Plus, you can walk it. It's a very walkable city, and people are genuinely friendly. If you run into Charlestonians, they're going to say hi to you on the street. I that took me. I had to get used to that. Yes, I'm from New York. Somebody says hi to me in New York. You're, what do you want? You know, yeah. I've only been to New York a few times, Peter. And Are, you when I walk, when I, Are you yes, serious? I've only been twice in my life. And when I'm, you know, if you're from Charleston, you, you seldom head north. You know, you're already here, right? Why would you go anywhere <laughs> else? Um, I, I've traveled to study uh, architecture and business and, 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 and finance. But when you walk on the streets of Charleston like I do here and saying hi to people, they look at you like, like you're crazy. <laughs> okay, I'll remember that when I walk outside the hotel. Oh. When, no, they look, they look at you like you're crazy when you're in New York and you're talking to everybody walking down the street. Well, well then you are crazy. You have to understand that. You know the difference. If somebody is out of their mind and they have no money, they're crazy. Yeah. If they're out of their mind and they're wealthy, they are eccentric. Uh-huh. So now, if you're walking down the streets of New York and you're talking to yourself and you're wealthy, yeah. then you're Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought I'd mention that. Okay, we'll move on. Uh, what did you know about a hotel before you built the hotel? Well, I had, uh, this was not my first hotel. In, in fact, I've, um, I was a Hilton and Marriott developer for some time. Um, but this one is a special one. This one does not have a, a Hilton or a Marriott or Four Seasons or a Ritz-Carlton or a Waldorf flag on it. I was always... Uh, again, it has the, the last name was again Bennett, I believe. Bennett. Yeah, okay, yes. double check. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm sure that the Waldorfs and all of these other hotel companies, Marriott's and Hilton's, they had a first hotel one time too. I know. Right? That's right. That's right. Conrad Hilton? Conrad Hilton, he started with one, and when the CEO of Hilton comes through here, he always says, oh my God, this could have been a beautiful Waldorf. (laughs) And it could have been. It could have been. been A beautiful Ritz-Carlton. Yep. Uh, But I always wanted to do it 
for my family and name it after my mother and father. So you basically tell them the name is not available because it's a Bennett. I told them the name was not available because uh, it's named after my mother and father. When I asked you what you knew about the hotel business, you said you'd, you'd done some development, of course, as an owner uh, for Hilton and Marriott. But the business, of course, has changed radically. We saw that during the pandemic. And hotels at one point, uh, there, were, there were thousands of hotels that were in a technical state of foreclosure during the pandemic, right? And, and, and it was so many, in fact, that the banks didn't want them. And they kept them running. And very few keys got returned, right? Um, I guess it was a good thing because then it came back. Did you expect it to come back as crazy as it did? Peter, when we opened this hotel, we were about a, a year late in opening, and we were ex excited to open. And then we opened, and about six months later, COVID hit, and we had to close down. It was a forced close down by the government. Uh, and, and yeah, those were very, very difficult times. And it would have been hard to imagine uh, the business coming back the way it did after it having been completely closed down. Uh, so those were challenging times. But... Charleston was a great market before that, and it came back very, very strong and even stronger after COVID. I would think that a lot of people moved to Charleston during the pandemic. People have always been moving to Charleston. It does appear that during the COVID, uh, more Northeast people, Midwest people, even You mean, you mean those people who talk to you on the street? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of those people. We have had a lot of people moving to Charleston in, uh, since, since the uh, since COVID. Of course, one of the bigger issues for every hotelier was staffing, right? People just, it was the great resignation and the great migration. And a lot of those people didn't come back. And we're seeing hotels even today that are calling themselves full at 70% because they don't have the staff to support the other 30% of the rooms that are actually vacant. Yeah. We, we may have avoided some of those issues, uh, Peter. Uh, and, and I think one way is we are very, very kind to our employees we really treat our employees incredibly well, uh, and, and I think these people um, like being here and, and, and stuck it out with us. Well, they also like living here. Yes, it's a great city to live in. When I take a look at some of the lessons from the pandemic, none of which were anticipated, right? Beware of the world of, you know, <laughs> unforeseen consequences. Uh, what was the lesson you learned? You know, I just opened this grand hotel, one of the most uh, most beautiful hotels in America, and I was so excited and exuberant. And within months of opening, it it it, it changed, and so it surely humbles you, uh, I, I think. And 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 yet we stuck with it, and it came back slow at first, and then came back very, very, very strong by the summer of 2020. Uh, it was coming back incredibly strong. So it tested your resiliency, um, but we were able to marshal through it. And uh, not sure if I answered your question, but no, that's how you, it felt. No, you, you, you did. But, but I want to go a little bit beyond that. From the guest experience, I remember the best thing that happened to me about the pandemic from the guest experience, you got rid of all the ugly paper in the room, right? The tent cards, <laughs> the, the promotional materials. Because what I used to do when I checked into a hotel, and this goes back to your days at Hilton too, I would take, I would open the desk drawer and just shove all that stuff in there because who wants to look at it, right? Well, we never had those things at Hotel Bennett. Okay, fine. <laughs> but, you, but, you, but, but you know what I'm talking I about. I know what you're talking about, Peter, exactly. Yeah. So what should, and, and, yeah. and yeah, so in the Hilton and Marriott's, it, it probably eliminated some of that. Yes. Uh, eliminated all of it, yeah. Yes. 
and then what did you do in terms of amenities in the bathrooms? I mean, right? It's interesting because you talk to the Marriott guys, and they and they tell you that in the bathrooms now, uh, they they wanted to put like permanently mounted dispensers. It was like you're in a bad college dorm gym, yeah. right? How did you adapt? Yeah, we don't do those things. We just we just you have individual containers, it. and that's it. Yes, that's correct. And then, of course, everybody was trying to be socially responsible and, of course, environmentally responsible, right, in terms of plastics, right? Yeah. No single-use plastics. So I'm sure you've done those initiatives. Yeah, yeah. We, we try to do our best on, on all those uh, items that we can. Uh, and, and the South in general, in, in, in Charleston and South Carolina, um, we didn't stay quite as hunkered down as, as uh, other parts of the country. Uh, and, and I think in the long run that helped us. And now... How many rooms? 180? 180 rooms. Wow. For Charleston, that's a big hotel. That's a pretty big hotel for Charleston. It's the right size for Charleston. For a luxury five-star hotel, it's just, it's just about the perfect size. When people come to Charleston for the first time, right, what's the one thing that surprises them the most? How beautiful and charming the city is and how nice the people are. They're always surprised that people in the hotel that they meet, but also Charlestonians they'll meet walking on the streets, how people talk to them, say hi to them. People they don't know will say hi to them, give them directions. It's really a nice town. And, of course, you can still do what I did 40, God, 43 years ago. You can sail in. Yes, you can sail in. We've got one of the great ports on the, on the East Coast. Um, I, I think the second or third biggest port on, on, the, on the East Coast. We have great sailing activities, great boating activities. It really is a wonderful... Although wonderful the cruise spot. ships, uh, uh, there's a carnival ship here now, they're pulling out, right? Yes, they're pulling out. Uh, a, a lot of the local uh, leadership really doesn't want to have cruise ships here. Uh, they think in, in, in ways that it takes away from the city. Um, I think the cruise ships... Will, will stay in Charleston, but they just have one a week normally. At the most, they're allowed is two a week. Yeah, you're not alone in that, by the way. A number of cities are basically either putting a moratorium on the number of ships that could be at any one port at any one time or just limiting the number that can ever come in. Yeah, I think there's just so many people who might unload at one time that it can overrun a small city like ours. Well, if you go up in Alaska during the summer where you have 39 ships in the inside passage... When they all show up in, in one city with seven ships in the harbor at the same time, the infrastructure isn't just affected, it's destroyed. Yeah, it shuts it down, and, and, and our city won't allow that, and they've restricted. Uh, there can only be one or two ships at any, on any given week. And I always tell people, if you're going to book a cruise, no matter where you're going in the world, assuming you're booking it with a, with a travel agent on the phone, ask them, don't just tell me the itinerary of the ship. Tell me when the ship gets to this port, how many other ships will be in that port on that day? Mm -hmm. And if it's more than two, don't take that cruise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't have too many of those issues here, really. This is not, uh, it's a great commercial port town, but it's not really a uh, cruise ship port town. Will it, will it ever be, do you think? No. So you put that moratorium on? Uh, th th there won't be any great passenger port business in this town, just the one or two ships per week. So basically uh, what Michael Bennett is saying is not going to happen. Not going to happen. And not by Michael Bennett, by the leadership of the community. Well, well, you're part of the leadership of the community. Well, I'm a local boy. Oh, stop that. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want you to take off your hotelier hat and your owner hat and put on your guest hat. When you walk into a hotel, not your hotel, any hotel, what's the one thing you look at and go, this hotel is not working? What's the one thing that tells you they got a problem? I, I, I like talking to the bellman and the doorman. 
and, and if they uh, em embrace their job and their opportunity of greeting the, the, the customer and talking to them, talking to the customer, uh, that sets the stage for a wonderful stay. Uh, and that's really where, where it starts. Uh, and Peter, when I was 20 years old, I was my only job in the hotel industry uh, before starting to build them uh, was as a bellman. I was a bellman and a doorman when I was 20 years old. And, and, and that's one of the critical I hope you jobs. kept a diary. <laughs> I got a good memory of it all. <laughs> I'm sure you saw everything. If you want to know what's going on at the hotel, you talk to the bellman and you talk to the maids. That's it. They see everything. They do. All right, but you know what you just said? It really gets down to the conversation, doesn't it? Yeah, just treat people the way you would like to be treated. It really isn't, it isn't hard, and be kind to your guests. See, uh, and one, be kind to your fellow employees, and it works pretty good. If I go to a hotel and there are kiosks in the lobby, I don't want to stay there. Yeah, yeah, we don't do any kiosks. Right, I mean, same thing with airlines. Yeah. I mean, I want to have a conversation. Yeah. And that, you'll, that, you'll have them at Hotel Bennett. Really? And you'll have them in the hotels we So have. basically tell me, after about five minutes, I have to tell the bellman to shut up? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you want to personalize it and, and make that guest uh, trip uh, personal. And, and you want to talk to him. And, and if they're staying there for two days, you'll get to know his name. And so when he comes through the door, he'll remember your name. All right, tell me the truth, Michael. You talked more and you got better tips, didn't you? I think you do. Oh, I'm talking about you. Yeah, I sure did. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> My thanks to Michael. Lisa Lutoff Perlow made history when she ran Celebrity Cruises. And she also shook up the system as the title of her new book, Making Waves, suggests. And as she knows all too well during her remarkable career, it's not just about the lessons learned, but the lessons applied. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this, all of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. Nice to talk to you again, Lisa. Peter, it is always my pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Well, listen, you know, you and I have been on ships together. I've watched you build that cruise line into what it is today. But let's be honest, at the time you did it, how many female CEOs were there of cruise lines? Yeah, me. That's <laughs> <Just> me. <laughs> And that was wonderful um, and special. And I always said when I was appointed to that role, I know I'm the first, but I don't want to be the last. And uh, and I haven't been. And that's wonderful. So that was back in 2014. Exactly. So 
I mean, we all talk about the glass ceiling. We all talk about you know, a male-dominated industry, which the cruise industry was when you think about leadership. So how difficult was it for you, first of all, to get to that point? And then, of course, how difficult was you to do your job? Well, there are two. I think there are probably two different answers to that question. I never felt in my career, and it will be 39 years. I am, I am currently at 2024. I am in my 39th year in the company. And I never really uh, felt that my gender in any way held me back from any of the positions that I've held in the company. And they are varied and progressive and all, I learned so much. It was a great, a great journey and a great career. And I never felt like my promotions were uh, ever at risk because of my gender. That was that was never uh, the situation. I think for me, it probably took 30 years. It probably took that long for a woman just because there weren't a lot of women that were in different roles within our industry where they were preparing themselves or interested in ascending into one of these roles. So I think a lot of it had to do with timing. In terms of some of the positions I held, you know, my... CEO position, I was the first woman, but that was the third position I had where I was the first woman. And, you know, I had differing um, experiences with fitting in or being welcomed or assimilating into a really male-dominated culture every time I went into big operational roles. But I learned how to navigate my way through, pardon the pun, and, uh, and be successful in spite of some of the barriers that I might have experienced based on being a woman. Then what would you say was your biggest challenge then uh, to, to do it? Well, you know, I grew up or came up through sales and marketing, 21 years in sales and marketing. And there are a lot of women in sales and marketing and in leadership roles in sales and marketing. And my biggest barrier was that I was a woman taking over uh, functions, operational functions that were pretty much all men. It's not a hundred percent, very close. And I just, I think I was met with skepticism because I wasn't, I didn't come from operations. I hadn't worked on ships. I was never a captain. I was never a hotel director. So these men were all looking at me thinking, why did she get the job to be my boss? Um, and why was she brought in from swooped in from sales and marketing to be my boss and put into these functions that she has no subject matter expertise? And so, you know, there was a lot of skepticism. Um, I, you know, I made a lot of cultural changes along the way and change is always difficult for people. So those were the, I would say those were the biggest obstacles, uh, where I faced them as I was advancing and going into very male-dominated parts of our company. Speaking of male domination, you know, it's one thing to say that you were the first woman president and CEO of a cruise line. Then you did something else. You, you elevated a woman to be the first captain of a cruise line. And of course, we're, we're speaking about someone who we've had on our show many, many times. We've done television pieces on her. She's basically the, the face of the, of, the, of, the, of the cruise line now, and that's Captain Kate. Captain Kate McHugh. And, you know, I always look at my career um, as a wonderful journey where I have had the opportunity to meet some such wonderful people along the way, like yourself, really, where you've been so gracious to me. And we've had so many interactions throughout the years in this business and in this beautiful industry. And one of my other coincidences was meeting Captain Kate McHugh, and she was a staff captain at Royal Caribbean when I was running Hotel and Marine at Royal Caribbean 
back from 2012 to 2014, chance encounter. She happened to come to a hotel director and captain's conference, even though at the time she wasn't a captain. It was a serendipitous moment for both of us. And when I was appointed to president and CEO of Celebrity as a woman, I decided a woman captain at Celebrity was long overdue. So I asked her to go on that wild ride and great journey with me. And she said, hell yes. So she was the first uh, woman captain for Celebrity, but she was the first and still only American woman to be the captain of a mega cruise ship. So, uh, And she's just had many firsts. She was the first to take a ship out of the yard with Celebrity Beyond out of the French shipyard. So she's, and she's a rock star. Everyone loves Captain Kate McHugh. So I look at that, back at that fondly and what a great opportunity for her and what a great opportunity for me. And then you guys went one step further than that because you guys became the first cruise line that I can think of where the entire bridge staff, the, all the officers, was an all-female officer crew. Oh, yes. March 8th, 2020, our history-making, barrier-breaking cruise on Celebrity Edge where 100% of the bridge was manned by women and every leader across the entire operation, whether it was hotel or marine, was a woman. And that's because um, we worked as a team, not just me, a lot of the amazing men that I worked with as well, worked really hard to improve the gender balance on our ships because, again, a very male-dominated environment. When I came to Celebrity, 3% of women um, on the bridge, uh, 3% of the bridge crew were women. When I stepped down in April of 2023, 33% of the crew on bridges were women and in the maritime industry only two percent um, of the crew on uh, in maritime are women so we made tremendous uh, progress in gender balance and uh, we're all very proud of that as well and of course you know that happened literally a week before the pandemic oh my gosh yes the week before the pandemic that was uh, march 8th we shut down on March 15th, voluntary shutdown. So when the, that cruise ended, that's when we shut down. So I talk about this in the book. It's my opening chapter. You know, from you go from your highest high in your career, Celebrity Edge, transformative ship for the industry, transformative ship for celebrity, manned with a 100% women bridge and all women leaders across the operation. Our guests were ecstatic. Our crew were ecstatic. I was standing in the Grand Plaza on March 11th. I got off the ship on March, you know, we were celebrating in the Grand Plaza on March 11th. I got off the ship on March 12th, and then uh, I went from the highest of highs, certainly as a company. And of course, you know, the cruise ship industry has made a rapid transformation in the post-pandemic years in terms of sustainability, in terms of, of responsibility, and of course, in terms of the way you actually do business. Yeah, no, I mean, we the industry uh, came out of COVID in a wonderful way. Uh, consumers are engaging in cruising again, just like they did pre-pandemic. They're, you know, the industry continued to make great strides, even though we were shut down. Um, and it's really nice to see that it has rebounded so beautifully. Of course, you know, now we are, you know, in starting a new year, 2024. I remember, as you do, Lisa, if you go back to the days of the love boat, there might have been seven ports of call in the cruise industry. I, I, I can name them. Here they go. Uh, Nassau, Nassau, <laughs> Nassau, Nassau, 
uh, NASA and Bermuda. I think that's it. Uh, <laughs> okay, that was it. Huh? That was it. And now, how many ports of call? Oh my goodness, probably a thousand uh, industry wide, but at Celebrity, there are over three hundred. So, uh, yeah, the world has, uh, you know, the the not only has the industry expanded significantly, all the brands, all the cruise lines, but so have the destinations that we've been going. And there are ships of so many sizes. And you know, I've always said, as I was selling cruising, which I've been doing for 39 years, regardless of the position I was in, there's no better way to see the world than by sea. And so I think there's just such a beautiful romance about, you know, uh, coming in and out of a port via the sea versus other ways. And the world is just, you know, accessible by sea. Over 70% of the planet is, is water. So it's just been a beautiful expansion that has opened up the world, which is always a wonderful thing because that's what makes us better human beings. My thanks to Lisa. Charleston is definitely a food town, and it's almost impossible to have a bad meal here. At the Hotel Bennett, their pastry chef has already been nominated for a James Beard Award, and their executive chef, Edward Cano, is a trailblazer. He also knows and understands not just menu planning, but menu psychology. My next guest has an amazing pedigree. Let me just start out with something that's going to be confusing to everybody. Born in Mexico City to a Japanese household, and now he's in Charleston. Yes, and I speak German. Of course you do. That's Edgar Cano, the executive chef here at the Hotel Bell. So you're trilingual. Uh, Fortlingual. I speak uh, English, Spanish, German, and French. Well, excuse me, or excusez-moi. <laughs> chef, when you come to a hotel like this, you're bringing your expertise from... As you and I know, uh, the Four Seasons Hotel in Mexico City, so you're bringing the Mexican cuisine, right? And all the other places where you've worked, this is an amalgamation of style and culture. Yes, it's, uh, Charleston has been an amazing playground. Uh, some of the dishes that we were able to place in the exclusive restaurant, Gabriel, it's, for example, a little bit of my heritage of all my travels. You'll see a little bit of Asian, a little bit of Japanese, some dim sum when I worked in Singapore, but definitely my soul is still Mexican and always will be, so you need to try my salsas. But so far on the menu, there's no dim sum schnitzel. Uh, not yet, oh, but God. I'll, that'll be, I'll write down for the next menu. <laughs> So when you make, you know, one of the things I always find with so many of the chefs, as creative as they are, sometimes they can overdo it because you're, you're loading it down with so many different, so you're sort of burying, you know, the, 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 the are you keeping it simple? Yes, my philosophy has always been um, less is more. So in Japanese cuisine, you will have less ingredients, but higher quality, so you can appreciate it much better. And uh, the last thing that we want is to create a fusion cuisine that it's more confusion than fusion. Well said. Although there's a, there's a restaurant I go to in Paris that's Asian-French fusion, and with a Japanese chef, unbelievable. Because he's figured out what you know, less is more, right? You don't, so, you don't try to bury the, the flavors with other flavors. Yes, like with the, with the opportunity we had here with the great product, uh, everything from uh, fresh uh, products from the John Island or even the shrimp that it's just caught right outside the, the harbor. It's, uh, you don't need anything to hide it. The only thing that you need is the right ingredient to enhance it. So your sourcing is not a problem? Uh, 
Thank God. Not. It's been really, really helpful to just go around in the markets, in the farmers markets on the weekend, or talk to concierge bellmen, the local people, and we've been able to find an amazing array of product, all the way from quail from a farm in Colombia, Columbus, sorry, and uh, shrimp from a uh, tarpon seafood here in uh, Charleston Bay, and for example, a lot of uh, micro farms in John's Island that we use uh, their product. And you're seeing a lot more micro farms bouncing up. I think that's a trend that uh, we, the chefs, should uh, support a little bit more. Like uh, we've always been believers of uh, supporting the community and having a collaboration with uh, producers and farmers around the area where we work. But uh, I think now it's time to even bring it up a notch a little bit more. So when you bring it up a notch a little bit more, is there a change in in your guests' palate? Is there something that they're asking for now that they never asked for before? Well, that's the challenge of a chef, and that's what we love. Because when we have a challenge like that, we can become more creative without being uh, over over uh, bearing or over, how can I say, like too many layers of flavors will harm the dish. But the creativity when we do a brainstorm special in the kitchen, it's like, we have people from so many ethnicities, and when we put all those brains together, we have an amazing dish. Like, we just had this uh, shrimp bucket that we just put in the menu for lunch, and uh, it's a collaboration of three or four of my team members, and uh, it's so good. Okay, you call it a shrimp bucket? No, no, a shrimp burger. A burger. a burger? Yes. Okay, so, okay, when we know, okay, it, it's, a, it's a burger or shrimp? Yes. On a bun? Yes. And what kind of sauce? Uh, this one has a saffron lemon aioli. So it's a, a little bit of lemon zest, lemon juice, and saffron to enhance the flavor and the color. So you have the acidity that it's a perfect match with the Asian flavors of the sweat or stir-fry uh, scallions and peppers and a bit of garlic mixed with the raw shrimp from uh, here from Charleston Bay. And uh, it's just an amazing. We have a collaboration with some of the local bakeries and they make their buns with a little bit of sesame, just the right amount of sesame, but lots of <laughs> butter. That's the way to win a brioche. And not too spicy. Not too spicy. That's why we have the sauces on the side. And uh, that's something you're that my kind of chef, have. sauce on the side. Oh, yes. I always ask chefs this question, so I'm going to ask you. But before we get into that, let's talk about menu psychology. Because menu psychology is changing, right? When you open up a two-page menu, when you have left and the right, you know, it's where you place the items. Not how you price them. Where you place them that will let people figure out what they want to order. Is there one place you want to put something on, on the menu better than any other place? Like, for example, some, uh, we call that uh, menu mapping. And something that has worked is, like, everybody will look at the first page on the left on the top. And then a lot of people will also look in the middle of the right one. But in order to make sure that the other items don't get lost, you can put them in a box, which is what we do sometimes. One of the main items that we're so proud to have, it's a curated uh, Royal Ocetra, a Hotel Bennett branded caviar. And we serve that in Camellias, the Champagne Bar. So that's the first thing that before you even start your dinner, you should have some caviar. And the chicken fingers and the mac and cheese, they're buried somewhere. Last page, definitely. <laughs> Kids mainly for EDR. Although I must tell you that I'm my judgment on, on a restaurant, you're going to laugh at me, chef, is if they can make a great grilled cheese on rye with grilled onions. If they can do that, I'm eating at that restaurant. You will make fun of that, but for for example, for chefs when we're hiring, one of the, the things that I asked for them to do in the stash, which is their cooking test, is a simple pasta dish. 
And that's when you see that the pats is properly cooked, the sauce has the right consistency, and that they do have the basics. Because if you don't have the basics, you cannot do anything. It's like building a house. The foundations, which is the basic cuisine, will be strong enough to support as many floors as you want to put in. And that's what we're aiming at. So when you do a test for a new chef, you've got to make a basic pasta. Anything else? Well, not that you're going to give away my secret. It's going to be a simple, simple dish. As could be a pasta. could be something as easy as uh, some over easy eggs. I want to see their cooking skills. But definitely something that it's... Can somebody really mess up over easy eggs? You have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea. Sometimes we were like, okay, let's get a bigger, bigger uh, mat for the floor because they're not going to land on the pan when they flip them. So, But the, the idea is to make sure that they have the basics, a very strong foundation, and then we expose them to challenge to make a dish that could be just a filet uh, of a tenderloin, but it has to be something that I've never seen before. That's the challenge that I throw at them. And uh, you will be surprised. We have it on crude. We have it covered in a cucumber. So we have it all the way, but it has to make sense. Now, what about a dish that you thought everybody was going to like and nobody ordered it? Right now, and we just launched it about uh, uh, three weeks, is the shrimp burger. So we run this dish for restaurant week, and we got great feedback. So it's like, okay, let's put it in. And right now it's not picking up, but it will be definitely, and I hope so. I'm betting on that one, one of the most successful ones for lunch. So right now if I go to one of your restaurants for lunch, I say, what's for lunch? They're going to be pushing that shrimp burger. Oh, yeah, and if they, do, <laughs> if, if they don't, let me know. I'll give it for you for free. All right, so then let's flip the cards. What about a dish that you think, do I really have to put this on the menu? And everybody wants it. Well, I mean, I always try to utilize my product in the whole menu so that there's zero waste. Zero waste will mean in uh, being profitable, but the most important, not to fill or lens with uh, things that or product that can be used. So, for example... We have a BMF uh, 7.9 Wagyu uh, for breakfast, which is a tons medallion. But I have maybe one ounce, one and a half ounce medallions that will be not making the cut for the perfect exponent. So what we do is we turn them into a lettuce wrap. Just imagine you're in Thailand and then you're going to have a lettuce wrap, but instead of shrimp or instead of lumpia, you're going to have perfectly seared Wagyu with a little bit of sea salt, and then a sake hoisin. And I was like, okay, well, well, let's see how it goes. Now I have to buy their tenderloin just for that dish. Because it's flying off the shelf. It's flying off the window, yes. But you know what? This is my secret, chef. With enough hoisin, anything works. (laughs) And if you add sake, it flies. (laughs) I love that. But it's true, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, hoisin has the perfect sweetness, the perfect savory, so to say, that it can match chicken, seafood, uh, you name it. And uh, what we did with the with the wraps was to create two sauces. One, a little milder that I learned to put it on the side, not on the dish, because people were complaining that it was too spicy. And then someone said, Chef, you're Mexican. You're doing a tourist salsa. Oh, that really hit my ego. So what I did was I brought a salsa that I did in one of my previous properties. and uh, That would set the place on fire. Uh, everything on fire. Your mouth, <laughs> your neighbor, everything will be on fire. So it's... Uh, it's oh, but on the side. Obviously, obviously. And uh, the story was that I was preparing it. I had to leave the kitchen. I came back 
And then I saw one of my cooks, red as a tomato, just cursing. Who did this salsa? The devil. And I was like, I was looking for a name. Now I got it. So it's the devil salsa or salsa del diablo. My thanks to Chef Conor, to Michael Bennett, to Lisa Lutoff Perlo, and to Zach Griff. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, a big thanks in advance for rating and reviewing this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.